0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Andrew Martin, author of the highly successful Jim Stringer series of detective novels, set on the railways of Edwardian England, a series which began appearing almost a decade ago with the Necropolis Railway. Andrew has now reached book seven, in which Jim, now a detective sergeant in the railway police, leaves his home in York for the front lines of the Somme, as part of the North Eastern Railway Battalion, nicknamed the Railway Pals. But the men turn out to be far from pals. When they go to the front, enmities and secrets from back home go with them. But before we got on to Jim Stringer's latest adventure, I wanted to find out about Andrew's own fascination with the railways. How had that started? Uh, well, my father worked on the railways all his working life,
1: starting at uh, 15 or so, or no, starting after his time in the army. I actually say so it was a bit older than that. But he worked on them for 40 years. Uh, until taking early retirement in the mid-80s when Mrs. Thatcher was trying to get rid of as many railway women as possible. He was in the offices at York, the headquarters of the northeastern region of BR, head office, a building that has just been converted into a five-star hotel. The office in which he spent 20 years is the whiskey bar, where over 500 malts are available or something like that. Because we worked on the railways, we had free railway travel as a family, and I had it as long as I remained a dependent of it, which I was for a long time, because after university I was a law student and continued being in full-time education until my mid-twenties. And I had free first-class railway travel as well, and I'd had that since I was a a boy, and when I got to be 13 or 14, I would think nothing of going off to London from York on my own, on, on the train. And I think that's where my connection with railways was really formed, because it was a very dreamy experience. First of all, just to be able to go to London as easily as other people in York would go into the centre of York um, made you feel, you know, like you'd really cracked it. You know, you were sort of aristocrat of the um, of the working classes if we were working class, except that it was a first, as I say, first class ticket, uh, and. Um, You'd be in a compartment, sometimes you'd have it to yourself, and um, it's especially good coming back from London very late at night. There used to be more trains late at night than there are now, so you might get on a train at 1.30 in the morning back from London, and you'd go to sleep, and you'd wake up and there'd be a man, big businessman, sitting directly opposite you and staring at you, and then you'd go to sleep again, and the next station, he'd be gone, somebody else would be sitting there. You wouldn't know where you were, they'd park up the train, seem seemed to be shunted off into sidings for a 20-minute stretch. You know, it was a very leisurely progress back to York at that point uh, uh, of the night. And uh, you'd look out the window and you'd see a great big factory, brightly illuminated, you'd be crawling past that. Then you'd go through dark fields for half an hour, suddenly another town come up, and and it would be um, quite a hallucinatory sort of experience.
0: So you had a sort of sense of the, the romance of the railways, even in a in a post-beaching world of, of, of diesels and, as you say, sort of getting close to yeah. the age of
1: Thatcher. Yes, there was still some romance left, even though they were cutting back the railways, and even though, as you say, it was all diesels. But, I mean, you had the Deltics, which were very big diesel locomotives. They were the only um, locos that I bothered spotting, <laughs> and, in fact, I, I had... Um, my notebook which, in which I set out to collect train numbers only contains the um, names of Delta because they were named. That was very attractive. They were named after either regiments or racehorses, which is exactly what locomotives should be named after. And also more locomotives around in those days that, as opposed to just multiple units, which are really very boring. But there used to be a little diesel multiple unit that you could get in to go to, start, uh, to uh, from York to Leeds. And if you sat at the front of it, you could see the driver in his cab. And there was a window behind his cab and, of course, a window to the front of it as well. So you could sit right at the front and see him driving at very close quarters. And I used to get on the train to Leeds on a Saturday afternoon, especially to watch that, to see the track unfolding before me. But on a sunny day, that was, that was a very... Um, you know, it's a very good view. Mm. And did you have an early interest in the history of the railways, going, going further back to the, to the age when Jim Stringer is around? I sort of developed that later on. I was more interested in just the atmosphere of railways. I used to like hanging around in York Station. I'd go there and just sit on a seat and smoke a cigarette. I liked the trains, especially at night. Um, if you were in a compartment and you had it to yourself, there'd be a dinner switch. You know, it's like you could design so you could adjust the mood very precisely. I'd play about this with this switch and have the light very low, and perhaps do a bit of reading. and might have a Sherlock Holmes story with me or something. A can of long-life beer and a bag of crisps, and uh, that was ideal. And I like stations at night time, particularly. And I just started looking out of the window. And only later did I develop interest in railway history. I still don't know half as much about railway history as people probably assume I do, or at least or, or assume I should do. And History is just a pretext for um, making up the fiction, as far as I'm concerned. So did you have a light bulb moment when you thought, aha, the railways are a, a perfect setting for the kind of books that you wanted to write? How did, how did that come about? I think the railways suit me, and I like atmosphere. I also like having a certain type of working man speaking, and the railway men were tended to be educated working men, so they were quite articulate, but they weren't hyper-articulate. And I I liked pitching the dialogue at that level, so it worked out quite well that I eventually did begin writing railway novels. But the reason I began... What triggered it was that I used to write a column in the Evening Standard about the underground, and in connection with that I was doing something about Waterloo Station, and I read about the 150th anniversary of Waterloo, and mentioned in in the account I read was uh, was the detail about the Necropolis Line, which used to carry dead bodies down to Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey, the largest cemetery in the British Empire. And I read about how there'd been a special little station for this just outside Waterloo, run by the London Company. And so I thought that was a great setting for a novel. That novel became called The Necropolis Railway. And uh, since I've written it, a couple of people have said, well, just because it's a line carrying dead bodies, w- why does, in, in a very smoky and, and um, blighted part of uh, Edwardian London, you know, why does it have to be a crime novel? I mean, I'd have thought that answered itself. What else is it going to be? A love story, you know. So it seemed that this, the the setting and the subject seemed to dictate prime kind of novel. So that's where this series came from. You didn't set out with a, a grand plan for a series at the start. There was a jam for the first novel, and it, it went on from there organically. Yes, I mean, I, didn't, I doubt very much that my editor would have, if I came to him and said, yeah, I want to write nine novels. You know, he'd have balked at that, but it just, it just grew out of that first one, really. Tell me where Jim Stringer came from. Well, he is the type of railwayman man that I mentioned earlier, in a sense, and unlike my dad, really, and like his friends. I mean, my dad did go to a grammar school, but he left it in his mid-teens. He was there during the war, so in a way he didn't have a particularly good education. He once told me about how they had so many weak teachers, all the men left behind who didn't go off to fight, and they would get very, the, the, the boys would get very angry with them. They would actually throw sandbags at them. Because it was, um, you know, there were sandbags protecting the windows. So I don't think he would say that he would being been very well educated, but he was bright. And I liked that particular northern tone of voice. So I wanted Jim Stringer to be northern. I wanted him to be pretty bright, but not an intellectual. And I wanted him to speak in a certain way that I associate with northern railway men, a rather laconic way that I admired. And uh, had those voices all around me all, all my childhood. So basically that's where he came from. And in the first novel, The Necropolis Show, where he had to not know and not work out what was going on with the setup on the necropolis line. So therefore he had to be quite naive, young and naive. And as a detective, it has to be admitted he's not particularly, you know, he's not remarkably insightful. He has a grasp of human nature. He gets there in the end. He's dogged. He's not Sherlock Holmes. So that dictates us. And, and I also like the idea of him being socially gauche and not quite knowing how to behave when confronted with people higher up the social scale because I like the kind of social comedy that would come out of that.
0: If someone is joining the series at this point with the the song stations, can you fill them a little bit of background about what kind of career... Jim has had so far. What
1: point has he, has he reached by the time this novel opens? Well, first of all, I should say that it's not in any way necessary to read the books in order. I once saw a man in Dawn's bookshop in Marleyburn, High Street, picking up one of my books, and he just was toying with it for so long, that I couldn't, in the end, I couldn't resist, and I walked up to him and said, look, I think that's a, quite a good book, and you know, I think you should buy it. And he said, um, yes, but uh, it's a series, and I haven't read the first one. I, at which point I, I came out as the author. I said, look, nev- at the beginning of all the books, the previous life of Jim Stringer is very briefly explained in a paragraph, which is in fact always one of the hardest paragraphs to write, but nevertheless it's all there, so you don't need any more than that. Essentially what happened is that he got his start, as he would, would, people said in that time, on the railways at 15 or so, working on the Northeastern railway, because he's from Baytown, which is what the locals of Robin Hood's Bay, as it's more commonly known now, called the place. So he's from a little town on, on the North Yorkshire coast, gets a job on the North Eastern Railway, working at Gromont, which is these days part of the bes- preserved steam line of the um, North Yorkshire Moors Railway. So Gromont was a pretty country station, but very quiet. One day, a sophisticated man from London meets him on the platform and, and lures him down to London, so Jim abandons his job at Grumman, where he's working as a porter, which is not what he wanted to do, because he wanted to be on the footplate, but that was the only job he could get. And he's offered the chance to train for the footplate down in London, working as he will he'll end up working on the necropolis line, although he doesn't know that initially. But you start, if you want to be a driver, by cleaning. So he works as a cleaner in the Nine Elms engine shed in 1901, I think it is. That's his beginning. And then he goes, in the second novel in the series, The Blackpool High Flyer, he is a sort of trainee fireman, what's called a past cleaner, where you're allowed on the footplate, you're allowed to fire, even though technically you're not yet a fireman. You're a learning fireman. He does that job in that novel, but um, immediately after that novel he comes a cropper because he accidentally runs an engine into a wall in an engine shed in Sowerby Bridge outside Halifax. That doesn't happen in the novel the Blackpool High Fly, but it's explained at the beginning of the next novel, which is The Lost Luggage Porter. And um, it's explained there because that is why Jim then becomes a railway policeman. It's the only job left to him to do on the railways. He's banned from... he was sacked as a footplate man, and that was what he really wanted to do. And he always maintains that the accident was not his fault, and it probably wasn't his fault. But nevertheless... so he's sort of banished from the footplate, and there's a kind of wistfulness then hanging over him for all the rest of the books in which he is operating as a railway policeman, which was not such a um, specialised profession in those days. I mean, there were thousands of railway policemen. Half of Britain was railways, so it wasn't an unusual job at all. And there was a police office in York Station, as indeed there still is, but now it's a tiny one, but there was a bigger one on the main platform, the London platform at York, and so that's that's his base. And for all the novels after The Lost Luggage Porter, he's working as a railway policeman, but um, a plainclothes detective. And, uh, of course, in the song stations he's abandoned that because he's gone off to fight. Now, in in some series of detective fiction, there isn't a strong sense of time going by. It's almost like some detectives get frozen and some mm. eternal present. That's very much not the case with, with your books. Time is, is very definitely going by. And so I wondered as you saw the Great War approach, did you feel a sense of trepidation or a sense of relish as you knew you would you'd somehow be incorporating that into into Jim Stringer's life? I knew I knew that if the series carried on long enough it would it was coming up. And I, with, with I looked at it with some relish because I've always been, you know, morbidly fascinated by First World War, and the First World War, it's quite uh, logical that that a war story should arise out of Jim's situation, because most able-bodied men who worked on the Northeastern Railway, which was the biggest railway of the pre-grouping railways before the big four companies were created in 1923, most of the able-bodied men did go off to fight, and, and, and many of them worked in some way on railways on the Western Front. So there's a story waiting there to be written as far as I know, I mean, I'm certainly not aware of another novel that is to do with railways on the Western Front. Mm. Can you say a little bit about that, that background sketch, and maybe the, the part that railways did play in the First World War? Well, if we take the, the battalion that Jim joins, he joins the 17th Northumberland Fusiliers. Uh, they were known, became known as the Newcastle Railway Pals, because a lot of them came from Newcastle, but quite a few would have come from other northeastern towns, and, and certainly some of them came from York. They trained for a long time. I was amazed at how long they spent training. Part of their training was done at Hull Docks, at Caterick as well, and uh, they would then did some sort of sentry duty on Spurn Point, which is an episode in the novel. So they were sort of 18 months training before they were sent off to France, and they got there in time for the Battle of the Somme. When they were in reserve, which meant that they were not in the first push, but they were involved on the first day of the song. At that point, doing what was called sapping, mainly, which was basically extending trend digging. Mm. There's a lot of digging. There's a lot of of digging. And that was the basic work of the Railway Pals, so not really railway work. But as well as that, they did a variety of railway jobs, building railways, and it's very complicated because they were split up into different units, and they would do some work on standard-gauge railways, some work, I think, on small-gauge railways, although I must admit that I have bent the truth a bit, in the sense that mostly the people who worked on the narrow-gauge railways on the front, which is the subject of the novel, were the Royal Engineers. But I think that they did take people from other units, so it's quite possible that people from, the, from Jim's battalion would have ended up, I think, working on the, um, the narrow-gauge railways. The narrow-gauge railways didn't really start to be built until 1916, and they really came into their own the following year. So, my story is set in, in 1916, after the, during the Somme campaign. There were small-gauge railways carrying weapons to the front at that point, but the network was not extensive. But I've used that as a little window to create my own imaginary network. Mm. To find out exactly where these narrow-gauge railways went would be I suppose just about possible if you spent years in the archives of the royal engineers. But they would put down the railways one day and take them up the next. Mm. That was the whole point. So I've exercised quite a bit of poetic license, but it is essentially rooted in historical fact, I hope. Mm. I mean, that's a question I often ask historical novelists or novelists with
0: a historical setting. What, what ground rules they set in dealing with the, the historical record? How do, they, how do they turn it into fiction?
1: Well, I think that you, you can't have sensational historical events happening that just didn't happen. You've got to know that you are within a, a historical framework, however approximately. But then, within that framework, you do become more and more liberal in what you will invent. I mean, you in a way, you realize that you can get away with with more than you probably thought you could. In other words, you're not usually pulled up, although that is an ever-likely possibility with a historical novel. People don't usually take you to task and say, this could not have happened because of X, Y, and Z. They don't know. Mm -hmm. Most people who read the book will not know. So you're a bit freer than you might think. But you have to maintain an authenticity of, of tone, and if you stray too far from the actual events... You can't do that. One problem I had with writing about the Western Front was: um, what level of stress are the men under? Are they constantly freaking out and panicking because they're being bombarded all the time, or were they often quite relaxed? And what percentage of the time were they in danger, and what were they not? And I don't think you could you had to get that approximately right, the ratio right, and you couldn't have them just running about having a great time. But At the same time, I think it was true that they weren't in immediate danger of their lives all the time. So that was one balance that I had to try and strike, and I was aware of, of trying to get that right. I mean, there were days when you were in the front line on the Western front when nothing happened. There were weeks when nothing happened, actually, I think. So I've got scenes in this book, quite relaxed scenes, just because I like I liked that laconic, as I said, tone. And I like the contrast between those moments and, and the high excitement of the, of the actual um, fighting. So that was something I was concerned to try and get right. I mean, the trouble, the other trouble with the war was that you have like a map, but the map moves as the position of the front moved. So you've got two levels of complexity. And I had to get that approximately right. Jim had to be in approximately the right geographical area at the right time. That seemed to me to be fairly fundamental. And I guess Jim Stringer's voice is now really very familiar in your head, but you get a a new situation like the war, and so you get new slang, new vocabulary. How sort
0: of historically faithful or or strict are you when it comes to to that kind of thing? Is that important to, to get right?
1: Yes, I mean I'm very aware of Edwardian slang, which I which I like because it's quite formal. It's a bit more oratund than uh, than the way that people speak today, and I'm very fond of certain Edwardian expressions, which I'm trying to bring back. For example, well, for example, people would say, um, "I was too tired to go out," and that's all about it, meaning that's the end of the story. Whereas now you might say. That was the end of the matter. Mm. But I like, that's all about it. And then when they didn't have anything to say, they, and they we were telling us, recounting it, instead of saying, I didn't say anything, they'd say, um, I kept silence, which I think is a very good expression. So Jim quite often says, I kept silence. That's a good punctuation point in a conversation. So whilst I would, don't think I could ever write a novel with very flowery ornate language, as, as in high Victorian middle-class language then, but um, I think Edwardian language suits me in the sense that it's just slightly more correct and formal. I mean, even the the whole public discourse is more attractive, I think. It's more elegant and certainly is wordier, but um, also just more of a consciousness of language. Language was perhaps just more important then because there was less... You could do less with a visual medium, so you relied on language. And if you look at language advertising... um, you know, men's coats. It would say, "It is indubitably the case that our garments are superior in the following respects." You know, and I like I like that. I like the, that formality clashing with um, violence. Because the other thing about writing railway novels, historical railway novels, is that everyone probably thinks it's going to be like Thomas the Tank Engine. It's going to be cute. So my villains you know, will wear suits and ties because every working man did wear a suit and a tie so it's that contrast between thuggery, of which there was plenty about no question of that uh, with, um, with what will seem like an old fashioned formality to the reader and, and that, that violence or that range is reflected in the language isn't it because as you say there is a sort of or rather elegant ornate Edwardianisms and then there's some very very Anglo-Saxon plain speaking, yes. isn't it? I mean, people have taken me to task about the swearing in the books. Said, they seem to think that uh, working men at that time would not have sworn. Well, I say to them, you know, when, when do you think that people began to swear? What, what do you think, 1976? When? I, I know for a fact that there was a lot of swearing amongst those kind of men at that time. One, one way I know is that I went to the public record office once and looked at some criminal confessions, confessions that had been written from prison or from custody by crooks. And um, they were trying to sort of, um, I don't know whether they I can't remember precisely what the context was, but they were applying for remission of their sentence, or it was a mitigation of sentence before sentencing. And so they were trying to appear to be, to sort of exculpate themselves. So therefore they wouldn't write out the swear words in full. But these accounts are full, these first-person accounts of, of references to swearing, so it would be, I told him, "Don't be such a mug. Give him the F gun, F on a line." And these accounts are actually peppered with this, or B in a line, meaning uh, bloody. But a lot of Fs. Hmm. So that just proved to me that uh, that they swore. And it's just that you don't read the, the swearing in. Uh, first of all, hardly anybody wrote novels about working class people at that time. It was a rare thing to do. And if they did, they wouldn't put the swearing in because it wouldn't have been allowed. It doesn't mean. Now, th- this regiment was, was known as the railway pals but I think as someone says quite early on in the novel they, they, they aren't actually pals and they, they are a, a tight group of, of men that you write about but there are incredible tensions in, in all sorts of directions can you say something about the, the group that you take to the front well it's meant to be sort of group jeopardy in the sense that you've got a small number of it's about half a dozen men who are, always end up in the same unit in a way that probably they they would have been split up but so there's a bit of contrivance there to keep them all together but um, they have to look out for each other on the western front but at the same time there is needle between them because of uh, what happened before they went to the front when one of their number ended up dead so they so basically get to front and they take a secret with them right? they, or a mystery with they, them they take a mystery with them and the trouble is that they've got to rely on each other and trust each other on the western front because they're operating these little um, trains and there's numerous ways in which you can get killed you can get shot in the ordinary way or you can have the cargo that you're carrying the artillery you have the train tip over which they did very often and then you might, it might blow up and kill you or you might be hit by a shell uh, but it was very hazardous, and they were operating these trains at night, trying not to let smoke come out of the, you know, the, the, the chimney of the engine, and they were under a great deal of stress. And they had to be very careful about which lines they ran down at certain times and how close they went to the front, and they had to be very careful about handling the shells. had to be very careful in driving the engines not to not to go over bumps because the track would be very dodgy and not to go too fast over them, but then again you had to get back quickly. So it's a stressful situation, and they don't quite trust each other because of something that happened beforehand. Plus, there's all the usual animosity that would exist between any group of men, based on class, based on different levels of education, and the fact that they'd all been different grades of railway men. So I I think there would have been tension between those kinds of men anyway, and... There's just more because, because of what happened, because the because death has been involved. But I think that um, another thing I wanted to get across Barton's attention was the fact that there is quite a lot of black humor in their exchanges, and I think that's how it would have been. And I think most First World War novels that I've read, at least the bad ones, have no humor in them at all. But it's not possible for men to coexist without humor, I don't think. Not, not, not in such stressful circumstances. I think even in such stressful circumstances, as I say, I don't think it was stressful absolutely all the time, but even under stress, I think there would have been, an, I think that the keynote would have been a kind of dark humour. All my instincts tell me that, but, I mean, it's of course it's difficult to prove, but I didn't want it to be all heartfelt philosophical musings about the futility of it all. There are men who are just there, they don't really know why they're there, and they're doing a job and they're trying to do it to the best of their ability. I tried to avoid having too many grandiose statements in it.
0: Were there many accounts for you to to draw upon of what it was actually like for these these railwaymen at the front, or is a lot of it the work of imagination? There
1: is quite a detailed history of that battalion, but it's frustrating in the sense it never really tells you what you want to know. It doesn't tell you what they did for social life, for example. It's just full of rather baffling accounts of how they moved from one camp to another and were split into different units or, and, and rejoined. And they, It's like a sort of amoeba. It kept splitting up and then rejoining and then some of them would amalgamate with another time. And in the end, I just sort of gave up trying to follow it, really. But the basic life of the regiment, of, of the battalion, is described in that 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 history mm. so that was that was the first um, source of the actual feel and the smell of it those those had to come from the imagination something that came from my imagination yeah i mean i went to um the town of alba which figures in the book which is just behind the front and i spent a day there of course it's now very peaceful too peaceful it's extremely quiet and uh I just wandered around the streets and tried to imagine looking at the countryside around, which I suppose is much the same as it would have looked on a very cold winter's day, and trying to just extrapolate from what's there now to what would have been there before. There's also (laughs) a very good museum there. I walked through that on my own, and it's sort of arranged in a in a bunker that I think was created in the Second World War, War actually. But you walk through this passageway, which is full of First World War memorabilia from the Western Front, and they've got all these sh- the sound of shells screaming in as a continuous sound effect. And if you're there on your own, as I was, it really is quite frightening. It was really deafening, mm. and so that was that was very useful. Um, but then I just. You know, I've always read First World War novels, and so I did have, I drew on other novels, I just admit. But, um, let me just just make it up.
0: You mentioned humour, Andrew, and it seemed to me that you must have had fun. There's a pair of twins in the book, Andy and Roy, and they're a a very
1: nice creation which combines humour, and also a fair amount of menace. Tell tell me about creating them and how how you use them in the book. Well, they're just based... It's difficult to know what language to use here without sounding very politically incorrect, but they're based on various people that I've known, especially as a boy, who were just a bit weird. I mean, he used to say it backward. And I don't think he can say that anymore. But they don't mind, because they're completely absorbed in, t- in their own world, and they're twins, and they only ever talk to each other. And they talk in this kind of um, made-up language, and I did enjoy making up their language, and at one point it comes into a sort of song, and I just um, don't really know where that uh, that came from. I mean, I don't think there is any particular um, condition that they have, <laughs> they're just a bit odd, and therefore they are sinister, and the look of them is based on, um, well, I can say this without giving anything away. A man that I have observed <laughs> in a certain pub over a very long time. Very pale, haggard man. Very piercing blue eyes. And so I just created two of him. He doubled. doubled him,
0: yeah.
1: Tommy finally, Andrew, can you reveal anything about what the future will hold for Jim Stringer? I suppose it's like, if you've been following the series and you you haven't read this book, you might... It might give away um, the ending if I say what, what might or might not happen next. But I suppose if you were to, um, it's like when the football results come on, you say, look away now or block your ears. Well, I mean, if, if I could, in that case, so that there is going to be another novel I and mean, it'll be another war novel, but Jim will be in um, Iraq or Mesopotamia,
0: as it was known. Andrew Martin. The Somme stations is out now in hardback and all the previous books in the Jim Stringer series are available in paperback. You can find out more about them on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.